Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. Um, before I get into the intro, I definitely want to go over what I want to get into this week. I, I, I saw some great things in Dr. Manning Marable's book, uh, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. I want to get into that. A uh, couple of points that uh, goes to the black church and uh, where the lack of a centralized culture has, you know, been an impediment for the black community. Uh, it just illustrated how the church, and it, clearly the black church has been a major, has had a major function, positive function in the black community, but not having the culture was an impediment because we, had, we still had different factions of black people that were not meshed in. And so uh, Dr. Manning Marable's book, illustrates that, and I'm going to get into that this week. I'm going to talk about what are the benefits of Quans. I want to get into that in depth. I also want to get into even more issues demonstrating Black Zombie Nation. And so I'm going to do that this week. And so going to the intro, this show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the Black community all rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western Hemisphere. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today, and I will use this show to make a case for using that fall holiday of Kwanzaa as an everyday platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around. Kwanzaa would be taken and turned into a year-round system instead of a once-a-year holiday. And, of course, as I always say, and I think these questions are pertinent uh, for the show, you know, why Kwanzaa? I think that's a legitimate question. Kwanzaa is African. It is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first-fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people could rally around. This would lead to better camaraderie, uh, more familiarity, which would lead to better continuity, and uh, more, uh, again, camaraderie again, which would lead to an enhanced ability uh, to organize, coordinate, and orchestrate. And, of course, all these processes together are what is called unity, Unity is a key ingredient that has been lacking in the black population and has been a major problem or at the root of many of its struggles. Uh, and, it's, and it's hampered its ability to deal with adversities, adverse struggles, and enemies as one force. So I'm going to use this show today to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that central culture, cultural platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro athlete, and before and after uh, current events and books I've read as illustrations of that need for a central culture in the black population. And you know what? I, as I thought about the show today, I realized I didn't get into the origins of Kwanzaa, Dr. Karenga, um, um, and, and I'll get into the creator of Kwanzaa, but also... Kwanzaa is actually, the, the Swahili language definitely is African, but not specific for Afri uh, to a particular African tribe. The Swahili language was actually utilized by slave traders to communicate up and down the West African coast. And so it is actually not ours. It's, it, it's, it's an amalgamation of different African types of languages and it was actually used in our enslavement. And so, and, and of course, a lot of Kwanzaa is in Swahili. But the fact of the matter is, what more profound a way to liberate yourself than to use the, the, the tools that were utilized to enslave you? So I still see Swahili and Kwanzaa as a perfect platform or a perfect tool to be utilized for the African-American community and African-American diaspora globally. And so I just want to make that point. I never talked about that before, but that is, in, that is a fact, that the, Sw 
Swahili language is not necessarily a specific tribal language in Africa. It may have been incorporated now, but originally it was not. And uh, I see it as the, the problem, of course, historically in Africa was there were too many tribes, and each tribe had a language. One country had 100 tribes. That means that one country had 100 nationalities within it. So not only was the tribe a country within it, a, a state, a country or city-state within itself, since it had its own language and culture and religion separately, literally, a witch doctor was the arbiter of the religion of that tribe. So he was not just a witch doctor. So if that tribe next 10 miles up from this tribe has their own witch doctor, which means they had their own religion. So that tribe 10 miles away from the tribe here, you know, if, if we're standing here at one point, had its own religion, language, and culture. That's another country. That's another race. You got a hundred of them in one country. It just makes it easier for other people to take over your country, which is what happened. So um, I, I see Kwanzaa having that ability to help in that regards of being a major uh, factor helping it. And so we have to get in again. I'm making a case for the lack of a central culture and how it's hurt the black community and black race. So now the question is, what is culture? Why is it important? And that's a fair question. Culture is a rendezvous place for ethnic groups. So it's a place for everyone to rendezvous. It cannot be collectively, it cannot do anything collectively or economically or socially or politically, security-wise, without a rendezvous place. No one can. Culture gives you the daily rules and regulations of an ethnic group, race, corporation, football team, sports team. Culture gives you a playbook for a race, a nation, company, sports team, as I said before. Culture is a coming together of shared values, beliefs, and customs. Entrepreneurship. Culture must be learned. It cannot be, you're not born with a culture. Culture gives you a sense of dedication to a purpose related to your race. So it is a, it is a, a major, major instrument that is used for the survival of, of, ethnic, of anybody, of ethnic groups. It is a connecting point for a race and its ancestral rituals and procedures to child-rearing, education, stewardship, and actual survival. Um, culture uses symbols, artifacts, flags, statues, uh, symbi you know, symbolic things, metaphors of their humanity, and anything that represents their ancestors. Culture is a center point of groups um, of the rituals of birth, and death and connect the race to its own creation. Uh, and it, it, you know what? Culture not only creates, it is their idea of God. Culture gives you your idea of God. It gives you your idea of creation. Very important. And so your culture can say God loves you, or your culture can say God, or not having a culture says God don't give a crap about you. Your culture can say God always has you. Your culture can say God will check you, but God's got you. You're the chosen people, you know, you're, or, or you're the untouchables in India. God, God gave, God cursed you. Culture can do that. Very important. Culture is economic uh, strategic planning for a race or ethnic group. It helps, in the, it helps it make acquisitions to start businesses, to help the process, as we talked about with the Koreans, uh, having the ability to come to America and start small mom-and-pop shops within African, uh, within African American communities, while African Americans struggle to do the same thing in their own neighborhoods. Now, you could say that's not fair, and I guess it's not. However, we do know that ethnic groups have a playbook a game plan, and their own economic system that they bring with them. We know that ethnic groups come from specific parts 
of of uh, where you know when they come to this country from other countries and other regions, they tend to come from similar regions, and they tend to congregate in to in similar regions in the United States, which of course gives them a distinct advantage over other groups in those areas. So the people that means these new people know each other. These new people communicate with each other. These new people have their own system. They may not have gotten the American system down pat, but they have their own playbook and system that helps them economically and socially. And so that's a distinct advantage. Uh, Obtaining culture is uh, educating to obtain. Culture gives you a value system that tells you getting an education is the next step to getting a high-paying job. Culture is the transportation of the history and the identities of a race. You are the chosen people. Um, culture is the collective spirit of a race. Culture, culture, culture teaches the race to love, educate, mentor, to punish transgressors, to correct, to reward, to celebrate, to take advantage of opportunities, to create family rules to raise children, as we said before, to take, to take care of old and honor them. Culture can tell you to do that, to forgive. Uh, project management is, is culture-related. Related. Um, the culture is, is it's like, it's literally the only way to be one. Culture is economic and political, uh, uh, physical, uh, uh, physiological, spiritual, geographical, (laughs) rallying point for an ethnic group, Uh, disconnection from that, those things, uh, makes it virtually defenseless. So a culture gives gives a race all of its diaspora, all of its networks, economically, socially, politically, spiritually, uh, like I said, economically, geographically, absolutely, uh, security-wise. Without it, they are defenseless, virtually. Culture is a template for race. It, without this template, it literally cannot exist. Only culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can organize you around economics. Only culture can properly dispute life-saving, uh, dis- distribute life-saving societal and developing knowledge to a specific group of people. Only culture can create symmetry between classes uh, with race. And, and we're going to get right into that with um, Dr. Manable, Manning Marable in his book, and he's talking about the black church, its role in, you know, assisting, well, not, not purposely assisting, but assisting in the underdevelopment of black America. So we're going to get into that, that symmetry. Culture would probably help that or should help that culture. Now, only culture can create, and we said only culture can create symmetry between classes. So, um, so we got into the things that only culture can do. Clearly, this is a, an important tool that if lacking hurts anybody, any ethnic group, regardless of color. And uh, this week I wanted to, like I said before, uh, Professor Manning Marable's book, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. Now, we have been talking about how, in his book, he looks at different aspects of the black community and how those aspects, those factors and factions were not that efficient or as efficient, worked as effective or efficient or unified as they could have and should have been. So he looks at the black majority, the domestic, uh, he looked at the working class. He looked at the black poor. Uh, He looked at black prison system and punishment. He looked at black capitalism. He looked at the historical evolution of the black market, uh, black, the uh, uh, black uh, Brehams, Bremans, which I think are, uh, wealthier black people and the underdevelopment of black political leadership, the ambiguous politics of the black church, the destruction 
of black education. So all of these are different aspects of the black community that Dr. Marable took a look at and, and tried to evaluate in as far as its ability to help black people or was it something utilized by outsiders to exploit black people? And so right away, when you look at the black church, you have to look at the black pre- preacher. And he makes no doubt. He makes no, no exceptions. He, he doesn't pull punches, Dr. Marable. Uh, the, in the 60s, the black preacher was considered, you know, kind of Uncle Thomas and not consistent. His value system uh, was thought to be consistent with, with white mainstream America. Uh, and, and so particularly when the black power movement began, they really didn't look to black clergy as far as political leadership. It was really Dr. King and the civil rights, Southern Christian leadership. But uh, at some point, Dr. King became too radical for the clergy, the black clergy. And so they, you know, they dispensed with him. But it also showed where they were relative to the black community, that they were not necessarily in touch. I realized I went to see Dr. Martin Luther King's childhood home in Atlanta in 2005. And the thing that struck me, Dr. King was raised by his father, Dr. King, uh, Martin Luther King Sr. Martin Luther King Jr. His dad is Martin Luther King Sr. He was a senior. He was a great preacher that enjoyed a good lifestyle currently. Whatever, whatever it was, when I went to see Dr. King, the childhood home of Martin Luther King Jr., I, Jr., I was shocked that it was about the same size as my house. And at that point, I lived in a house that I, I, you know, I played professional football for 10 years. I had a nice, decent house. It was $400,000 or $500,000, whatever it was. I don't have it now. Um, and it was just amazing to me that this is his childhood home. And of course, Dr. King was assassinated in 1968. He was 37. So in the 1920s, Martin Luther King Jr. lived in a house that was consistent with the house of a professional football player in the 2000s. So it just means, and apparently Dr. King was always self-conscious about being not necessarily an economic, you know, not necessarily in step with the majority of black people because he came from a higher class of people or the black bourgeois. Uh, he was raised up with clearly well-to-do parents or people that had a lot of economic means where the vast majority of black people had no means. And so that was, you know, that was shocking but that's a, a metaphor for many black preachers as far as being, essentially, they were the professional athletes. If you want to look at 1900 to now, the professional athletes in the black community were black preachers. Even with athletes, athletes weren't making money like that. They would just celebrate it. But people who had a nice lifestyle, people who had a distinctive lifestyle that was not in tune with the vast majority of black people would be black preachers, you know, doctors and lawyers, but particularly the black preachers. And they were celebrated. They were looked high, you know, thought highly of and, and greatly respected. Now that doesn't mean they were sellouts. It doesn't mean they were, um, you know, uh, it, it, uh, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was a pre- uh, preacher and obviously Dr. King and the, the Southern Christian leadership. It doesn't mean you're Uncle Tom or Charlotte just because you're a preacher, but it does mean that you had an economic means that created congruency between many preachers and the white establishment and clearly mainstream white America. They spoke a similar language, and it, it made them, uh, I say, when we're looking at the need for a central culture, you know, that's a red flag. That's kind of what I'm talking about. And that a culture, as we said before, culture gives you better symmetry between different classes. 
So you may be a, you may be Jews. There may be doctor Jews. There may be lawyer Jews. There may be teacher Jews. There may be people who Jews that drive cabs, but they all rally behind, and the rally point is the Judaism and the rituals that they celebrate together. So as they do these rituals together, it becomes much easier for them to do other things together, politically, economically, socially. And so that's the advantage of having a culture and having a centralized culture. And uh, Manning Marable looks at the black church and its role in the, in, in, I think he, he, he admits not necessarily on purpose, but definitely the role in the underdevelopment of the black race. So we're going to page 209, and he's talking about, again, in this chapter, Dr. Marable talks about the ambiguous politics of the black church. And so and he goes right in it with this paragraph. He says, uh, the minister, in accepting Christianity, also, in some degree, identified with the major moral values and, and institutions of white society. Consequently, it was relatively easy for him to work with whites, even though this sometimes amounted to a betrayal of blacks. Now, let's look at that. See, again, just because you're a preacher doesn't mean you're a sellout. Just because you're educated doesn't mean you're a sellout. Just because you're black and not poor doesn't mean you're a sellout. As a matter of fact, in efficient races, in unified races that have a proper um, cultural platform, it gives you the ability to maybe broker, to, to integrate and work with like white people, meaning having doctors and lawyers and having, having preachers who, who, who are leaders give you what is called human capital that should be able to negotiate on behalf of the ethnic group, theoretically. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that, you know, preachers had the economic means and they had the values that were similar with mainstream white America. Maybe they could have stood up for us better or, or negotiated for us better. But here's the thing. What power did they collectively have since the economics, the politics, the labor were not really part of one power structure, you know, and in a centralized culture, it, it just helps you do that easier. It's much easier to utilize. So with us, basically the black peaches or, or politicians are negotiating and standing up for us but they don't really have any economic power behind them because we don't own anything or we do. We don't, we don't use it collectively well, so we can't really punish them. See, that's what happens in negotiation. Any negotiation is we can help you here, but we can hurt you there. How can we find a middle ground so you can help us and we can help you? And so to have that, you need power. And to have that, you need collective power. And culture does that. And so that was one thing that when you talk about black preachers in the black church, yeah, but where, where your, where's your economic power based? You know, where are all, where are all the cab drivers and cab companies and, and car dealerships? I don't know any, any group of businesses that constitute a, a, a economic power base. The economic power base means they hire politicians that, that um, follow their interests. They also are supported by the masses of that race, meaning people buying their products. So there's more symmetry when you're talking about ownership and leadership and the everyday laborer, the everyday person. Culture ties all of that together. If you don't have a central culture, now you have the, the preachers who People think he's maybe acts too white, talks too proper. I don't know if I can work with him. I don't know if I trust him. I don't know if we, if we can work together. He doesn't, he doesn't talk like us. He doesn't, he doesn't drink like us. He doesn't dress like us. So he must be with them. So that's the historical 
struggle that has existed in the black community. And of course, I see a centralized culture as being that major impediment. Um, as for Martin Luther King, again, he goes on. I have Great Britain written down here. Why I have, I have that, I don't know, but I don't, you know. I, wrote it, I read this book a while ago. As for Martin himself, this is uh, Professor Manning Bull, uh in the next paragraph. As far as Martin himself, the young black nationalist, so now we're talking, if we're talking young black nationalists, Malcolm X is probably assassinated by this time. We're talking about the Black Panthers. We're talking about Stokely Carmichael. We're talking about Eldridge Cleaver. We're talking about the late 60s, after 66, uh, Dr. Moringa, uh, the, the Young Turks of the Black Power Movement or Black Equality Movement are now not, not too keen on black preachers. The young, the, black, uh, the young black nationalists had little sympathy as the crisis of black America deepened. Allen wrote, King was converted into a reluctant accomplice of the white power structure. The white elites discovered that King was useful uh, to restrain the threatening rebelliousness of the black masses and the black militants. Great point. So, Manningbow is, he's not necessarily, he's really condemning everybody. He's saying how everyone's contributed to the underdevelopment of the black race. And he's saying you're not necessarily a sellout because you're a preacher. But you, you are also a, you've been a tool that has been utilized by the white power structure at that time to kind of bring positive light to this way, nonviolent, trying to negotiate, and to kind of alienate and to make demagogues of the militants that say, F this, we ain't taking it, and we're not having it. That's an interesting thing. I, I maintain that the big problem is the lack of a centralized culture which made it made us different peoples trying to work for a similar cause, but we had a di- we did not have a strong ability to mesh in well with one another. It is said that I don't know if this actually happened, but this this definitely was the reality that actually Malcolm X, who was the black nationalist at that time told Dr. King, you need me. They, the only reason these white folks want to work with you is because they don't want to deal with me. And so now, when we talk about Malcolm X, we're not just talking about some militants. We're talking about the Nation of Islam, which is a unified, organized faction of black people, rich, poor, and what have you, that can boycott that can take action when you do something to them they're going to do something to you and everyone kind of knew that about the nation of islam and so these were not people to be trifled with and um they had mosques all over the country and uh they malcolm x it was headed by elijah muhammad the, the honorable elijah muhammad but malcolm was their you know their voice Malcolm X was their Che Guevara, basically, Che Guevara, and so to, to Castro's revolutionary Cuba. And so that's kind of, and he's saying, like, if it wasn't for me, they wouldn't be talking to you. They do not want to deal with me. And that's what I say culture should do for a race. There should be better symmetry between the different types of black people. Culture can do that. Malcolm X was a brilliant individual, but he was, his father were, his parents were Garveyites. And so he uh, grew up educated, but his father was assassinated, basically, I think by Ku Klux Klan people. And so uh, in that instance, he grew up struggling with poverty and anger. Uh, He became a pimp and a street guy. So he ended up once he went to the nation and cleaned himself up, became one of the most brilliant minds that America has ever produced. But this is a street hustler. He was a drug dealer. He definitely ran numbers. And uh, he was on drugs himself, to my knowledge. 
I don't know. Well, you know, I won't, I won't say that. I know he was a street pimp and hustler. That's a fact. And Martin Luther King Jr. was an elitist, educated clergyman, son of a clergyman. So, you know, this guy, was a, he was a nobleman. He was, son, he was the son of, he was a royal, basically. So how could these two men have anything in common? And the answer is they had very little. And, and so, and, and so there, there are not too many cases of Malcolm X's and, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s meshing together. And I think that that's a, a reality. You know, that was a, an anomaly, King and Malcolm X even talking to one another. So I see a central culture as being that, that platform that we all come to and gather around. And so, uh, for instance, let's see what else it said about Dr. King. Furthermore, King did, uh, could not repudiate this role because he was convinced that the establishment could be pushed and pressured to implement his program. Interesting. So you have this disconnect between the King generation and the young Turk uh, black militants, but he believed that his way would get more, would gain more traction and headway with the general public, which basically Malcolm X predicted. So there, what you have here, so now Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965. He, um, he, his tenure was early 60s, late 50s. Same with Dr. King. Dr. King survived longer, so he was going towards the end of the 60s. So when they talk about black nationalists, you're talking about post-1966. So, again, you're talking about Black Panthers. You're talking about um, guerrilla factions or, or um, again, Stokely. At then, his name was Stokely Carmichael. You're talking about Eldridge and Elaine Cleaver. You're, you're, that's the Black Nationalist. That's late 60s. So those are three distinctive groups. You have Malcolm X, early 60s with Dr. King. Then you have Dr. King. And then you have the late 60s with the black nationalists. And, 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 and Dr. Karenga is in that group. But here's the thing. Culture would give some type of symmetry between all those groups. So there's no coordination there. So there's no, okay, Dr. King is doing this. Okay, we're going to wait because we could connect on this level. Malcolm X, the, the real black nationalist, said it. I'm helping you. I'm helping you. These white folks want much rather deal with you than deal with me. Both our interests can be achieved, but don't you can because I guess uh, Malcolm X rhetoric was so harsh, and you know th that just was not Dr. King's way. He was nonviolent, loving everyone, and Malcolm X was like, "I love everyone, but if you kill me, I'm gonna shoot you. If you shoot me, I'm shooting back." And I'm I'm a black man. I'm the original man. And, you know, so they came with a, a different ideology. I, I understand it now as we've gotten so much into culture and how, how important culture is to an ethnic group, how it tells an ethnic group what to do, how to do it, and that it can do it. Culture tells an ethnic group that it can do it. And so what we're learning is self-love is a major part of culture, any culture. And so... The, uh, the Nation of Islam went very extreme with it. You know, with, they, hey, we're superior. You white folks they ain't never done nothing, causing nothing but trouble. And that's Malcolm X's view and his group. And that group, it wasn't just him. Dr. King was like, I love all men. God, we're all God's children. I love all of you. I don't like what you're doing, but you're still my brother. So it was a different energy. A centralized culture could have coordinated all those things together to benefit black people more. As Malcolm X said, I'm actually helping you. You talking junk to me and about me, you're condemning me, but I'm the one that's helping your plan. Then the young kids come after him, not really waiting on, uh, at this time Malcolm X is dead, assassinated. They're not trying to move, wait on Dr. King. You're Uncle Tom. You, you, you working for the white folks. And so a central culture 
would be a key part of that. And so, and we see that disconnect with that. Uh, on April 4th, 1968, King was assassinated. This is further on in another paragraph in, in, in Manning Marable's book. Uh, and on April 4th, 1968, King was assassinated while assisting 1,375 black sanitation workers in local 1733 of the American Federation of uh, American Federation of the State, County, and Municipal Employees, the AFL-CIO, in a strike in Memphis, Tennessee. The middle-class reformer had become a militant proponent of peace and economic democracy and, and, uh, and black working-class interests. Ah, so m- m- remember, we have the black church having somewhat of a disconnect between, uh, you know, the different groups. We already have a disconnect regardless of black church. Rich, poor, middle class, educated, uneducated. We already have that disconnect. It's interesting that Dr. King had seemed to transgress that and now realizes the bigger picture of economics and economic democracy um, and working for working, working class black interest. And of course, uh, once Dr. King was uh, unifying poor people, he now became a more serious threat and he was assassinated. So uh, it, again, we get, we show right here, it shows how important economics is to politics, to religion, because once Martin Luther King Jr. became a threat to economics, he was, a, he was, they jumped on him and killed him. So that right there to me shows me when we're talking about progress and we're talking about moving forward, it's everything. It's economics, it's education, it's politics, it's social, it's everything. The only thing that puts all that together is culture, to my knowledge. Um, moving on further. King concluded finally that the defeat of racial segregation in and of itself was inefficient, insufficient for creating a just and decent society for all Americans. King followed the tradition of earlier black activists and uh, without hesitation, he broke from many of his own advisors and supporters and like Malcolm raised many public policy issues which uh, could not be easily resolved within the existing system. So he realized that there, would, there need to be more extreme measures taken to effect change in America. And, um, and, and so that's, when you're talking about that, it's, it becomes a bigger deal and, and far more encompassing. And only, co- you know, voting, it's going to be more than voting to do that. It's voting along with everything else. That's where, where culture, a centralized culture, is so effective. Uh, right. And as he said, as Manning, uh, Dr. Manning, Manning Marable says in his book, uh, King was murdered because he had begun to wake up poor people in this country, and not only poor people, but also poor white people. Not only poor black people, but also poor white people uh, entering this dangerous area, which, of course, made him a, a bigger threat. Uh, leading to the assassination. So, and on this other side, this is a real cool thing. I hadn't, I forgot this. Again, we're talking about uh, the ambiguous politics of the black church and how that has been in different ways helpful and not helpful to the black race. But back here, Manny Mo gets into, I'm not going to get totally into it. He gets into the different breakdowns of Catholicism. He's basically saying there's Catholicism for the bourgeois, there's Catholicism of women, there's Catholicism of town workers, there's Catholicism of the intellectual. He's saying within the, the, the religion of, in the Catholic religion, there are different groups within that religion that see it different. And they, they need to be talked to differently. And so, now I've, ne- I've never seen a divide in the Catholic Church like that, but he's referring to that now. The black petty bourgeoisie 
is generally attracted to a high church Anglicanism or Catholicism or Presbyterianism or Congressionalism, uh, substantial elements of the black intellectual have have even have either been Quakers, dice, dice, and um, agnostic or atheist. Nationalists have often been attracted to the alternatives to Christianity, particularly Islam, which really the nation of Islam. Extreme integrationists have sometimes claimed Judaism. Uh, what unified believers? What unifies believers here is faith itself, the most important element of a non-rational character in all religious creeds. So, Dr. Manimo is showing that religion can't unify black people. Like, the black intellectuals think one way spiritually. The black working class thinks another way spiritually. In uh, the black petty elite think another way spiritually. They're more Presbyterian, Anglican. Now, it's interesting there's a church called African uh, AME, African American Methodist Church. Uh, no, African American Episcopalian Church. And they, I went to their church and they were a little different. And that's interesting that he brings that point up. And um, he make, well, he makes my point for me that, you know, basically the church cannot make us one. It can get us connected to creation, which is a good thing, but there's no rallying, there's no centralized rallying point for the different black people historically with the church. And, and so, as he's referring to here, so, um, because there are so many different, you know, there are different people, there are different types of people that are attracted to a different type of they're attracted to religion delivered to them in a different fashion. Each group prefers, has their own preference, with the black nationalists going away from Christianity uh, with the history and, and all of that. So they've kind of rejected Christianity. And to this day, uh, a lot of the rappers that you listen to on the radio are, have now become part of the nation of Islam. And so they, they feel a connection there. They feel that that's a place that understands who they are. That's a place that tells them to love themselves. So if the black church wanted to rally black people today, it can to a certain extent, but you know, not on the massive level that one might think, because there are different types of black people that uh, you know, worship in different types of ways. And then is the black preacher and black, is he or she perceived as a leader uh, in the way that Dr. King was, you know, 50 years ago? Anyway, we have great activist preachers. I think Reverend Barber in North Carolina, Stacey Abrams is amazing. Uh, we have, you know, obviously we have Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, but how many activist preachers do we have that are into the politics and have a thorough understanding of the political nature? That's not, we don't have that many. And so what can the black church do as a surrogate or substitute for a centralized African culture? I don't think it can be a substitute. And as a matter of fact, I call black people, and I'll say it, they are cultural Christians. We tend to go to church ritualistically as part of our culture, instead of going to be connected to God. See, if you're going to church every week, you should be trying to be Christ-like. So you should be, you should be, you should just conduct yourself. <laughs> there shouldn't be the petty antagonism within the black community if so many black people were going to church and know God loves them and, know, and knows God loves everyone. Okay, so you see, you don't see that, and certainly not on a massive level. You don't see a, a big distinction between them and, and, and people who don't go to church, as far as, now that's my opinion. So, but now, let's get into, I talk a lot. <laughs> this is going a long way. I'm 45 minutes in. I wanted to get into, I still wanted to get into the consequences of 
not having a centralized culture. And so black civilization. The great author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of the Black, uh, black Civilization, that the West African population of, of Africa was occupied um, by refugees from East Africa, where they built their own singular societies and civilization. So, of course, the fact is, Ethiopia and Egypt are in East Africa, powerful ancient uh, empires that were African-made. With an unknown centralized language, which no one to this day, which is called unknown, no one knows to this day, uh, but that, that language tied them together because of natural disaster and the immigration of Arab peoples uh, from Asia Minor, the Africans of East Africa began migrating across the continent to the western portion of the continent. As this happened, they began splitting up, and they began going into different parts of West Africa, forming their own tribes with their own tribal languages and cultures, as we talk about, with one African uh, country having up to 100 tribes. As a result, having no central state, European incursion was not unchecked, and instead of uniting to deal with the common threat they posed to the region, on the contrary, the slave trade caused infracticidal, I always mess this word up, infracticidal, infracticidal wars, which basically cousins fighting each other with the winner taking the loser and handing them over to European traders. Now, we got to get into, we still have to make, uh, get an understanding of the stupidity. This is in a book I read, Black Labor, uh, White Wealth, where African tribes and their chiefs would make war on their neighbors, take those slaves, give them to the European traders, and they would get liquor and, and I think guns, Whatever, from a value standpoint, and this is really, really unfortunate because people think metal didn't exist in Africa and like the white man brought metal to Africa. That's not true. Uh, There have been metaling, smelting, and creating iron and steel in Africa for thousands of years. It just was not used as a means of currency. So it did not have value to the African chiefs, so, which was a mistake. It was unfortunate because... They literally gave value to Europeans and, and received very little value for the labor that they were trapping, catching, and handing to the Europeans. So it, at least if they were doing this in, in enslaving, helping to enslave other Africans, they would become wealthy. That's not what happened. They were getting things that really had very little wealth. They trinkets and things like that, probably liquor. Well, I think the Indians was liquor, but nothing of substance. If you're trading labor that's going to create wealth for another group, I don't care who it is, you should get something in exchange that's that's equitable, that's that's consistent with the wealth that you're giving them, which would have been gold, which would have been diamonds, which would have been um, oil, uh, they weren't using oil at that time, so gold, oil, you know, pelt, pelt, furs would have been. They did none of those things, and as a result, wealth was literally transferred from Africa basically to Europe through their colonies. Europe became powerful, and then they came back 100 to 200 years later. Maybe it was 200 years. They started in the 1600s, um, making it official as far as the slave trade, Fifteen. 1600s. By 1800s, all of the European powers became colonial powers and then came back and colonized all of Africa. The wealth that they utilized to make themselves powerful was from the slave trade that the tribal chiefs literally gave them. So this is what we talk about when we say not understanding power and not understanding um, your own value. The fragmentation in the black race has created a fractional reality uh, that uh, the black man has not had to build or, or maintain his own society for 5,000 years. And so these, there are consequences of that. And so 
that that is you know not having to maintain your own culture and society definitely has a consequence how you see yourself how you prepare others how you greet and love each other all is impacted because if you're creating your own civilizations and society everything you do is geared towards that everything you do is geared towards getting ready for that enjoy even when you enjoy winning it's your civilization and society that is winning. So when a United States athlete goes and wins the gold medal, we don't celebrate in the black community. We don't celebrate in the white community. They won for the United States of America. And so we all feel a sense of pride. So that's the same for a country. It's also the same for a culture. So when, when your, your children, the offspring of your culture, go and do great things, that is celebrated within the culture. Uh, same thing with they do bad things, then you got to correct them. Uh, when they are able to purchase things, that's wealth that's created for the culture and the people, uh, you know, collectively. Obviously, the individual owns it, but, you know, that's something that everyone enjoys. So when you don't have those, a need for that, that makes that, you know, that really throws off your trajectory. It, it, it throws off the trajectory of your self-development. It throws off the trajectory of how you choose a mate. You got to realize, if you're, trying to, if you're trying to have your culture win, your society win, your civilization win, who you choose for a mate is now impacted by that. I can't mate with someone who's not going to help the civilization or society. I can't just wait. I may like you, but you're not really going in a positive direction. Without a centralized culture... It's not as important. That's not as important. Without a civilization to build, without a society to maintain, to, to win, a football team, you know what I'm saying? If you, if you play for the New England Patriots, you need to be in shape all the time because you're trying to win the Super Bowl year in and year out. You've won a bunch of them before. There's no reason why you shouldn't think you can't win a bunch of them in the future. Of course, you need another Tom Brady, but, but my point is if you're, if you're not – if you're just lifting weights and you're not competing and you're not part of the NFL, what you know, you're just a big athletic person, you may stay in shape, but you're not going to get yourself in tip-top shape to go out and compete. Cult, centralized culture relative to civilizations and societies does that for you. And, and again, and you know what? If you're, a, if you're a New England Patriot and you want to win the Super Bowl, you're not going to hang out with the guy that goes out and drinks too much and gets into trouble. He may, you may like him, but he's not going in a direction that's going to help you win a Super Bowl. Same thing with a centralized culture relative to societies, your own societies and civilizations, who you associate with, who you, everything is relative to winning and your society and civilization with. And so a central culture puts all that in its proper perspective. So the consequences of the black man not needing to build and, and, and not needing to maintain his own civilization. The result is he's become remedial in the area of military science, power creation and acquisition, and not even understanding very much how they work and making him, a, a, making him vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups. One part of, of gentrification is moving black moving poor people out and moving higher income people in. Well, one thing is other ethnic groups can get in there in the first place because we don't have that collective enterprise mentality in us. So we don't own, we're not the owners. One way they can get us out is we're not the owners. And if we are, we're a minority group of owners that's not that centralized. So if you own a bunch of houses, that's cool and good. Who, what, what politician do you have working for your interests. Where are your kids going? Your kids can't work in that neighborhood, so they start, what, leaving. So it's just old people in their houses. It's just that you're, you're still vulnerable to, you know, once the powers that be want that area, even if you own, it's, they can get it. It's just a fact. It's different when you have a culture that, that allows you to gain political control of an area. And that area is vibrant. It means your kids can, they don't have to leave there. They can stay there. 
And so you have generations of people buying more property and, and connecting even more, giving you more political power and authority. So you got a household that lives there. They have three kids. Well, two of them are in that area. They bought houses. They vote the same, typically. That your, your power is expanding and your ability to, to um, work with other businesses and, and, you know, and to patronize other businesses is stronger. Your overall power base is stronger when you have people that are able to stay. They cannot stay if you don't have an economic power base that gives them business, that gives them jobs. So they have to leave, leaving just the elderly owners of homes. And you would think right off the bat they own, so they have a certain amount of power, but they're elderly, not necessarily, not so fast. They're not as organized and, and they're not as powerful as the groups that are trying to come in to get them out. So that's where the gentrification comes in and the black man not having to maintain his own, his own societies has made him remedial in this area and made him vulnerable to predatory groups. They've made him a marginal ally at best. The so-called black uh, community is quick to antagonize, alienate, and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. So these are people we tend to, we don't mind disrespecting each other, but you better not disrespect me. This is our mind. This is our mindset. And uh, I, again, the, the professional athlete thing has been an interesting ride where people come up kind of staring at you. They see you before you see them, and they will literally wait for you to talk to them to acknowledge them. And so, and, and so that's a metaphor, and that's a, a prime example of what we're talking about, what I'm talking about as far as emphasizing not being respectful but emphasizing on making sure you don't disrespect them. This ecosystem of hostile discontinuity manifests itself into what I call black zombie nation. And so uh, this, is all, <laughs> this is all part of a, the results of not having to sustain our own stuff and not having to come together to create not having to come together to attain acquisition, not having to come together to educate collectively, uh, not doing, needing to do that on a massive level. The so-called black communities are extremely susceptible to gentrification, which we talked about, because they have generations leaving, uh, because they have not been established, and they have not been able to establish and maintain their own self-sustaining economies within that politically, uh, this, this political economic environment, you know, so making them vulnerable to changes in the laws and redistricting. So redistricting is, of course, again, back to the old people that own the house, houses, but it's just them. They can start re-changing the laws that make it hard for them to stay. They can raise the taxes in the area so they can't afford to stay, so they have to sell. And, and so and they, once they do that, they force the people to take you know, really low prices, the houses, they'll, they'll, they'll buy a house from a person for 100000 redistrict, and that same house in three years will be worth 400 half a million. You know, definitely that happens in San Francisco. And uh, so this is, this is what law changes and redistricting, redistricting. But these are politicians and developers. Well, we can have politicians and developers. But the thing that ties us together is that central culture, that game plan. Activism as a rule of the day, which really is reactivism, the so-called community. I'm being harsh when I say that, when I call it the black community, so-called community, and I shouldn't be so hard. Uh, they're doing more than I'm doing. And so, but we, uh, we react to negative by the general public, and it doesn't take over Reactivism means bad stuff is done to us. Then we call, okay, and we call Al Sharpton, and he comes to put out fires everywhere. Al Sharpton's hair is turning white, turning, turning silver, going around trying to help everybody because we are so reactionary. 
We don't take power. We don't create. We don't take. We don't uh, politically take over places, and that's the only way to maintain your safety and security. And so, uh, I, as usual, Red, I'm going to start next time. I'm going to start exactly where I stopped um, this week. We talked about black domination. I wanted to get into the, the benefits of Kwanzaa, what it can do. I appreciate this opportunity. I appreciate the time to be with you. Um, I've made my case for the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and how I think Kwanzaa can be that very important platform. So I wish everyone the best. Have a blessed week. And thanks again. Uh, this is Clarence Jones.